I had no expectation though. I hadn't heard of Dawn of the Dead. I didn't know anything about it. I, I kind of had a vague a notion of who Romero was. And that, fuck, like, you know, that was one of those things where you're watching a movie and you're just like, why didn't anybody tell me about this? Like, it just was, it was like a, a kick in the head. I was just like, wow, like, yeah, yeah. this is what I want to do. Like this, that movie to me is like, I don't know, it's funny, like people sort of describe their own ideas of what sort of is the perfect movie and you know that's a weird dialogue to me because it's i think that's such a personal thing and the notion of a perfect film but, but for me dawn of the dead is a perfect film i'm with you too as you can see behind me here yeah. i mean dawn of the dead is is my favorite film of all time and say so what's your favorite horror film of all time dawn of the dead what's your favorite action movie of all time dawn of the dead yeah, what's yeah. your favorite uh, you know existential drama about a man's place in it dawn of the dead yeah what's your favorite you know because that's the beauty of yeah. dawn and as you age as a horror fan right i mean you start to watch all these great movies and you realize they're not just horror movies there's that's so right. much more a good movie's a good movie there's so that's much right. going on in the great horror movies than just trying to deliver cheap physical Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. In this episode, we'll be doing something a little different. I find myself on the other side of the table, as it's me who's the one being interviewed. And interviewed by one of the greatest of interviewers, filmmaker, writer, journalist, and former Fangoria editor-in-chief, Chris Alexander. We thought it might be informative and fun for you to get a sense of the beginnings of the show and my own personal journey into the realm of horror. So, thanks again to Chris Alexander for doing this with me. Chris has been a tremendous supporter of this show, and I think he's one of the greatest spokesmen for this genre. We're very fortunate to have him. Okay, without further delay, let's have a look at where my love of all things dark and scary began. Okay, let's start before you got into this world professionally. Uh huh. Let's dial the clock back down to when the bug first bit you. When did you first kind of realize that weird shit and I, I say weird shit because horror is such a ghetto it's such a box and we <laughs> yeah. know that the kind of stuff we love goes all over the place into the arcane and bizarre so when did you first realize that you love weird shit in the realms of entertainment um i want to say like i think thriller was kind of the beginning for me i remember seeing that video the song for sure but but the video, which had like, you know, uh, it was such a love letter to all things monsters and, you know, the, the, this sort of, uh, that was what, Rick Baker, right? Who did all the effects on Thriller? Rick Baker and directed by John Landis, who at that point, again, you wouldn't have known either one of those guys, but no. that was their work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember just sort of, you know, loving the aesthetic and the artifice of that of that video and the vincent price stuff and i didn't know who any of those people were right i mean i was like thriller came in 85 or something is that 83 83, 83. so i was yeah. you know i didn't i wouldn't even have seen it when it first came out i was or you know what i listen stop i may be wrong 82 I, you know i think the album hit 82 i think the video maybe we're leaning into 83 but anyways it's somewhere in that yeah in that so i was like i saw it when i was like five or six like you know and I was born in 82. So 
just everything about it just connected for me at that age and like the part where he's walking after the movies with the girlfriend and and right and, she, and he turns and you know and he's chasing her and like, go away yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. whole bit like i thought that was the coolest thing like i just uh yeah. that that just did it for me um and uh and i think so that sort of planted this thing about monsters um and and i think the next thing i remember seeing after that that really hooked me in was the uh the gate with the 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 the, the canadian you know which i guess was tibor tibor tactics 1987 yes yeah yeah um yeah. Which I'm, I'm sure I saw on, you know, City TV or something like that. Um, which was, you know, right. for for our, our listeners that aren't locals, that's that was like late night uh, local programming. Um, and I loved the gate. I thought it was so cool and creepy. It, it's funny too because it wasn't until later in life that I went back and watched the gate that I realized how tame it really is. But as a kid, it's, it's so tame. Yeah, yeah, I know. My yeah. memory of it as a kid was that it was so horrifying and gruesome, but it's not at all. Well, it's not gruesome, but it's, I mean, this came out in 87 and I think that was a bad, bad year for horror. I don't think there was a lot happening. Uh, and there was maybe a Friday the 13th sequel, part seven, seven, maybe, or no, maybe it's the following year. Either way, it was kind of a drought. So when this came out, it was kind of a big deal. And while not explicit, there was tons of special effects in this yeah. thing. So it was deeply macabre, right? Yeah, Zom we had zombies. You had the little creatures. You also it's from a child's point of view. So you being a child, that's right. Obviously, grafted onto this and could put your own. You could really empathize and identify with the the protagonists, right? I know a lot of people sort of think that sort of a suburb, all kind of suburbs, sort of look the same. But there's something very Canadian suburb looking about the location of that movie. It looked like Absolutely. the area I grew up in, and and you know, there's just little details that you might not notice if you're not a, a you know a Canadian kid growing up in the suburbs. But I don't know where they shot that movie, but it looks like Mississauga, or, you know, anyone. It looks like I think it was Mississauga because yeah. yes, it stinks of Mississauga. So yeah. let me just, again, for your American listeners, wouldn't know a Mississauga from any, from, you know, from Shinola, but is that where you grew up? You were a Mississauga I grew up in Mississauga, kid? yeah. 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 Suburb me too. Did wow. You, did you grow up in Mississauga? I did. Well, I did. I, I was born in Toronto, but I, we moved there to Mississauga when I was like 12. Okay. So I came of age in suburbia. Nice. So yeah. I'm wondering if there's kind of, and I, I'm wondering if there's kind of something to be said about that being living in a place where the sheen of normalcy is everywhere fitting in and then suddenly feeling like you don't fit in and then identifying with movies that that definitely don't fit into especially at that point any semblance of the mainstream at all yeah it's funny because i remember seeing return to the living dead too which you know is like a divisive movie it's you know some people love it for nostalgia reasons right. or whatever but anyway not getting into a review of that film but but there was something about the that the the location of that movie which was this suburb that was being built um and that yes. was that was what where i was at in in mississauga at that time we were in a suburb that was brand new and they were building me too it. yeah so when yep. i saw that movie and i had never seen a movie set in a being built suburb um there's something about it that really kind of it felt so specific to me at that time and i actually again that's one of those movies that you know i see it now and it's like it's a total comedy and 
you know, not all the gags land or whatever, but, but I thought it was scary as a kid because it, I, it's from a kid's point of view. It was in a suburb that looked like where I was growing. Again, there was so many things that were resonant to me at that time. Um, and it's funny to me how and it's also, it's also somewhat nihilistic. It's not as nihilistic as its predecessor, of course, but still bad things happen to kids in that movie. And that's something that, you know, we didn't see a lot of on screen. No, those kinds of films, kids didn't get, didn't become the zombies. They were, you know, they kind of got out unscathed, but but not so much in in any of those. Pictures. Well, and I think you know, yeah, in the gate, you know, when the the thing with the parent, the the mom, I think it's the yeah. mom who comes in, and then she's, you know, the, she gets all goes all monster goopy, and then right. you know, and in and and in the second Return of Living Dead, it's you know when he chomps down into his mom's head, you know, and I was a mama's boy for sure, so. So those, those things were horrific to me. The the idea right. of just, you know, doing something bad to your mom, something happening to your folks like that was that scared the fuck out of me when I was a kid. So those movies, you know, and then ultimately, of course, the, the sort of granddaddy of those movies that messed me up. And to this day, you sort of I have this very strong connection to his pet cemetery, which was right. You know, right. Yeah. You, as a kid, I that movie just, you know. I never got nightmares from watching horror films, but that one gave them to me. That was the first movie I remember seeing that I actually had nightmares from. Right, and that closed out the decade. And man, it it really was. Well, the, I mean, the book. You remember the myth? Well, you're a little bit younger than me, but you remember the myth going around when that book came out was that King was so uh, drained by it he had to put it in a drawer for a while, like he couldn't even look at it. Yeah, but it was true. I remember reading that as a, a young age. And I was devastated. I was also devastated by the film because of the obvious reasons, but not as much as the book. Uh, but no, I can imagine. And how old were you when you saw Pet Cemetery? Because that's that's a heavy meal even for an adult. But how old, especially for an adult, you're a parent. But yeah, how old were you when you saw? What it came out in eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty nine. Yeah. So I saw it. I remember it had just come out on home video. We got it at Jumbo. Right. And the funny story with that was that my sister had tricked my parents i still to this day don't buy it but this is the story that my sister told my mom that it was like a um like a, a nutty professor type movie about these ghost pets that come out and then cause havoc and <laughs> it was like jumanji or something and and yeah, so that before my, there was a jumanji yeah. right so my my yeah. mom rented it believing this story now what i've never bought about that is the artwork of that movie kind of it's makes it it's a stephen king very clearly and my mom would have known who king was I'm wondering, you know, maybe the possibility is that she just ran in and asked for it and they gave it to her or something like that. But anyway, we got home and we sit down to watch this movie as a family. My sister, who was two years older than me, I would have been, you know, eight, eight, seven or eight. And my sister, who's, you know, 10 or 11 and my folks. And five minutes in, my mom's like, nope, and gets up and leaves. And she's like, I'm not watching this. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not the kind of movie you said it was. Allison, you know, my sister's like, what, what? Then 10, like 10, 15 minutes in, my sister, who's older than me, decides it's too scary for her and she leaves. So it's just my dad and I sitting there. And then it gets to the part with, I remember the part where Pascal is, grabs him and says, you know, I'll come see you when he, when he gets hit by the, the truck or the car at, at the school. And at that point, I was like, you know, that was to me where, where this is the first time in a horror movie where I was like, the shit got real, like where it felt something connected with me in a way where, where the, the idea of something ominous of a, of a, 
of a presence, you know, uh, that, that could, could connect you through a movie and, and connect you in an emotional level and scare you that fundamentally, like that moment did that to me in a way that, you know, thriller and, and things I had seen prior. And I had seen, I think I had seen maybe a bit of hammer stuff at that point on TV and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Right, but there's not. I mean, Hammer is is kissing cousin to like you know Sleeping Beauty or something. I mean, it's yeah. in that realm. That's it's it. Not, That's right. You know what I love. Hammer. There's a there's a safe space in Hammer. There's nowhere to hide in Pet Cemetery. No. It's about as merciless a movie as you can imagine. It's and it's Pet Cemetery just has you know it just oozes this bad juju. You know that the nothing's going to go well for anyone in that movie. You can just feel it. Nobody. And it's, it's rough because you know the undoing of of the Lewis Creed character is is so. I think for me as a kid, even I understood this, and it's something you understand much more. I think as a man, especially you know I don't have children, but for you who does, I imagine if I had kids, even more so. This idea of like, well, if you were in his shoes, what would you do? What would would you do what he did? Yes, you would. Right. You know what I mean? You everybody would. And then if, I loved it, the Fred Gwynn in that, you know, which everybody he gets, so good. I hate the way that people kind of tease and mock that performance. You know, I know it became a gag. Oh, I, don't, I didn't even know. I didn't even know they did that. I mean, that's. I mean, he's wonderful as as Judd. I mean, uh, John Lithgow in the remake is also good, but he's no Fred Gwynn. I mean, Fred Gwynn brought something to that. You know, there was a, a certain. I know when his soliloquies, the, that deep voice, there was something really ominous and serious, the gravitas that he brought to that. Yeah, John Lithgow, you know, he played it really straight. And he was, and John Lithgow is a masterful actor. He's really, yes. I love him. Yeah. But, but Fred Gwynn, you know, brings this sense of, of, old timey history the almost yeah. the lore he uh, he brings an authenticity to it that that lithgow just doesn't feel old enough or something for me to to carry that well i mean it's 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 the moment in pet cemetery that always sticks with me is fred gwynn stumbling to the don't don't let him go on the road Lewis. Yeah. like it's that kind of that 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 persona that was missing from the incarnation yes. of judd in the remake that he captures but let me ask you something so First of all, dial it back a little bit. I just realized the connection. Everything always, I love finding the connections in the journey. But, you know, Thriller and then suddenly Return of the Living Dead hitting you. And it's funny because Return of the Living Dead Part 2, at the end of Return of the Living Dead Part 2, remember the connection to Thriller? Yeah. That's somewhere inexplicably the Michael Jackson ghoul <laughs> shows up. in this. Uh, but, you know, Cronenberg said this once at uh, some point. I can't cite where I read it, but I knew it was him. Uh, and it was something in, in relation to the brood, but it's, he said, the moment we realize that we're going to die is that moment that we lose our innocence. Yeah. And watching Pet Cemetery, a movie that's so ripe with the stink of death. And yeah. as you say, no one gets out alive. Everyone dies. Um, it was that kind of bubbling around the, the moments in your so. life when you were kind of understanding a mortality and that your mom and your dad and yeah, everybody I would think be so. Gone. I think so. It also like it was an age. I went through some stuff in my personal life that was that was very scarring at that age. And and so it was it was a, a very it was a turning point in my life in a very fundamental way that that, you know, you can't go back on. Um there were things that happened and then and then also my kind of foray into darker you know film happened to line up with with an event in my life that was sort of irrevocably like you know this that's it it's you don't go back from that so 
it's weird to have that association with a a movie that you that you connect to a a, a you know a, a, an event in your life that was traumatic. Um, so whenever I watch Pet Cemetery and more so the book at, at now, but but the film still has this for me. It, it, it does bring me back to that time and 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 a time of great trauma as a kid that I was going through and. It is, you know, it's sort of a cliche to talk about that people watch horror to sort of face fears and deal with death. But it's it's true, right? It's that old things become sure. cliche because they're true. Tapping mm-hmm. into that for me is like part of how I sometimes remind myself that I that I soldiered through it and that you can do that. And, you know, John Carpenter talks about that, that that's why he likes making horror movies, that it's that sort of, you know, you can survive the night that there's this evil thing that can come out of nowhere and, 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 you know, and, and you can, um, and you can, people die and shit goes wrong. And, but, you, but then there's the Laurie Strodes and there's the people who make it right. And, and I think so for me at that age, I didn't see that yet. So pet cemetery was the right film for me because I was this eight year old kid who didn't, who didn't have hope anymore, who thought the world of a sun was a bad, scary place. And so a movie like Pet Cemetery just made sense for me in a way that, you know, Freddie and those guys didn't at that time. They were, it, that was a little too, um, I don't know. There was something safer about, you know, you look at Freddie and it's like, I think the first Freddie movie I saw was like the third one. And already by that point, he got a bit cartoon. He was, he was a cartoon by yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was, he was safe. By the time we had, you know, call Freddie, 1976 Freddie and Freddie's night and he was on Lunchbox. I mean, the, the party was over. You go to Toys R Us and there's the Freddie glove. It's like, yeah. Hmm. No, there's nothing that's no longer dangerous anymore. That's it. But, but, yeah. But then at this point, you were discovering things that were dangerous. Um, yeah. But, you know, this was, especially in Canada, we know growing up that we, you know, horror culture had has what it is now was not not anywhere on the horizon as back then. There was generations of monster kids. There were fans, but the level of fandom, it wasn't as goobble gobble we accepted. We were still pretty isolated. If we liked this stuff and we liked it a lot, we were always going to be on the fringe. So we either had to accept that and be cool with it or we'd be miserable about it. Which Where did you fall? Were you accepted by your peers as the weird kid who liked all this shit? Or did you kind of have to hide this stuff under the bed with the porn mag? I was sort of a very odd kid in the sense that I was popular, but I was kind of a loner and by choice. I had friends, but I often I was comfortable. I like to be in my own company at the same time. Um, I liked, you know, by 91, I was obsessed with full moon Fango and all that was well in place. Um, and none of my, you know, I, I always have this memory of being at school with a group of my buddies because I also played hockey and, uh, um, you know, and, and then, of course, around that age, come around 11, 12, I also started dealing with, oh, hmm, I think I'm gay. So then there was that that coming out component, another ostracizing kind of distancing thing. So I had all these things where I was like, fuck, do I ever not fit in any? I didn't really know. So I, I think I stopped caring because I maxed out at, at that point with it. it. It was so beyond my threshold to worry about what people thought of me that I was putting on plays. And I was always a clever kid, a kind of a funny kid. So that made people like me. And I was a bit of a smooth talker as a kid. So I had lots of girlfriends, even though, you know, <laughs> in hindsight. Uh, so, you're, so you were a good actor at the time, yes, too. Got yeah, it. yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was definitely I, I think I was aware that I was different and, and on a few levels. And but I, right. you know, I, 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 
I always think of there's a line in um, the movie Milk. Uh, you know, not a horror film, obviously, but but uh, the, the, certainly a horrific film at points. Uh, there's a line in that movie where where Harvey Milk says to this sort of politician character who says he, says to Harvey, you know, you can't ex- expect acceptance overnight. And Harvey says, I'm not looking for acceptance. I don't have time for that. And I that was kind of me already at that age. I was like, I don't I, I just stopped giving a shit if people were OK with the fact that I was weird and liked weird things. And and, and I think that's why people I think that's why why I was accepted was because I wasn't looking right. for it. Um, so I, you know, I can't say that my childhood was tough or something in that regard. It was tough. The the part of that, a lot of my friends were like these jock guys and, you know, I'd be sitting there and they'd be talking about like, you know, some hot sing vulgar stuff the guys say about women. And, you know, I remember this conversation where they were like Schwarzenegger would could kick Stallone's ass and they're having one of those conversations. And I was right. just like, I don't know. I, and I was like, I just think Donald Pleasance would walk in and shoot all those fuckers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and they're looking at me like, who? Like, what the? And I thought it was a hilarious joke and nobody got it but me. And that was fine for me. You know, I was okay with that. Um, so that was kind of, you know, and I started, I just started doing theater at a young age and that was a good outlet for me. I, I really flourished there. I did well there. I was, you know, put all my energy into that because it was something I was good at that let me kind of retreat from having to deal with everybody's bullshit. And, you know, I think. When- but it was, it was also, it was also like any performer, whether it be uh, the class clown or the guy on the stage, the the gratification of getting that energy back from the audience, making them laugh, being able to kind of manipulate and control them and have that empower yeah. that power over them. It becomes very addictive. I, I, I guess. I mean, it, was it that way for you? Yeah, I think so. I think trauma is a funny thing that way. Right. I mean, you know, when you, especially I think as a kid, because you, you can have sort of, I've always said there's sort of two reactions for a child to, to any kind of, significant trauma which is that as you start to get older you go the direction of well everybody's bad and you can't trust anyone and the world's a fucking horrible place or there's the other direction which is like well if bad people can do bad things i know that i've experienced that but that if there's that there also has to be the opposite you know this sort of the yin yang you know the the everything has to have its its opposite you know they talk about that in prince of darkness i always like that concept of you know the, the mirror image of everything that everything has to have its opposite so I think I went more that route. I was like, if if I know there are really there re- are real bad guys, you know, to me they weren't just mythological creatures anymore. I learned at a young age that there were real ones. So by the time I was a little older, uh, I started to process the idea that that also had to mean that there were really great good people, and I wanted to have those people around me, and I wanted to be one of those kinds of people. So uh, in the stage, I found a lot of people like that who who were kind of you know theater's sort of the island of misfit toys in that regard. So mm-hmm. you have all these weird wacky people, and you know you've got kids who are quoting you know everything from Streetcar Named Desire to you know me who'd be up there doing like Peter Cushing monologues and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, so I had horror and I had theater and that was, you know, and then I had hockey. So it was like this weird. That is a weird, that is a very weird trifecta, a, yeah. a uniquely Canadian trifecta, very. I guess. I don't <laughs> yeah. know, you know? <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, this we're looking at in the 1990s now, I mean, to actually seriously consider a, a career in the, in the, in the arts or in, in film, God forbid, I mean, 
that was really shooting for another strat. I mean, we couldn't, yeah. we didn't have the tech. We literally didn't have the technology no. to, to be the things we wanted to be. We didn't have the, the reach nowadays. Obviously people can connect with anybody, anywhere, anytime, and they can make competent looking cinema on their phone and have that easily distributed, whether by themselves or through many, one of the myriad platforms. But back then, not so much, but did you always know that this is where you were going to go and you weren't going to take anything else? Or did you actually have a backup plan that you said, I'm going to go become a mechanic or, you know, and then it fell apart. I mean, what, what was your co- professional career path like at this point? I, at first I thought I was going to be an actor. That was, that was, you know, the thing yeah. that I was like, Oh, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go be an actor. And then, but I actually like, I talked a, a bit about this with Charlie band when he was on the show, it was because of those fucking video zones um that you know because it's people true. have to remember yeah. like there was no dvd so you no. know uh, and fango was hard to get in canada at least where i was it sure was and, you know yeah. there was like one little uh, news outlet place that was half an hour from where i lived that sold yeah. it and uh yeah. so i didn't get it wasn't that easy to get my hands on fango and like famous monsters i don't even know if it had any kind of syndication in canada i don't ever remember seeing it as a kid it showed i remember it showed up once in a while but it, it then there was something called monster land and it died you know how many times famous monsters died there's something called monster land which was all for ackerman was involved in that but i don't know who published it anyways Yes, I mean to get your hands on this stuff was yeah it was really difficult. And yeah. so, Video Zone became like the thing that started to sort of become my film school was to watch these, these the, you know Charlie Band would introduce these you know segments where he'd show you how the movies are made. You'd meet the directors and the actors, and that was what I revolutionary revolutionary. It was such stuff. a game changing yeah. thing, and you know, and and Charlie never gets the fucking credit he deserves for that, but um, never. And, uh, you know, it was it was this thing where I where all of a sudden I I started to understand what a director was because I, right. you know, you video zones showed you what they did and who they were. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. I think that that started calling to me more because I didn't want to just be an element in the telling of a story. I wanted to tell stories. Uh, and right. I was always writing, you know, like scary stories to tell the dark type stories with these crazy characters and stuff and drawing. I wasn't much of an illustrator, but I'd always give it a go. And I remember getting to the point where I'd put on plays and I would draw, I had this friend who was a good illustrator and I'd get him to draw pictures. And there was coordinating pictures that had to go with each scene in the play and the people had this program and, you know, the scenes were numbered and we would announce each scene they turn in their program to see this scary horror illustration that went with the scene. I did this elaborate stuff like this to try to, you know, combine scary imagery with the limitations, of course, you have when you're a kid trying to put on plays and stuff. And then I started getting my hand on camcorders. And and that was when my first director passion started to happen because I had the video zone. So I loved, you know, Ted Nicolau was like, you know, with this guy with this crazy hair. And I loved the subspecies movies. Um, I loved, uh, you know, guys like um, Courtney Joyner and just some of those full moon guys who I just, those were the guys that I thought were, you know, like, I thought they were like famous. I didn't know that they were like, you know, not famous in the context of, you know, Martin Scorsese famous, but, um, you know, but, but then I remember I, I, a very kind of sort of important thing happened, which was I saw Halloween four and I loved 
that movie. Uh, I loved the Michael Myers character and and I felt utterly in love with, I was already in love with Donald Pleasance, but that really solidified it. I had seen him in, you know, The Great Escape and stuff like that. And and, and I thought he was brilliant, but, but then I saw him play Loomis and I was like, holy shit, this is, so, but so I saw four first and I was like, well, I need to see the first one. So I go to the video store with my folks and go to the, you know, there was like a cardboard castle that was the horror section at Jumbo. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, so I go and I get the first Halloween and I, I rented it and that was a game changer. I just became obsessed with John Carpenter at that point. I see. see I, I'm surprised. You know, it's so funny because I saw Halloween too before I saw Halloween. Yeah. And um, I, I, I really dug Halloween too. Oh yeah. And by the time I got to Halloween, I was a little underwhelmed when I was a kid because it's a much more sophisticated piece of work. And I, I found it, same thing happened with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I saw two before I saw one. And that's a real cold jumping from one temperature to another experience, let me tell you. They're so different. But that's interesting. So so how, then you loved Halloween 4, but you when you saw Halloween, that's it. Everything, all the planets aligned and everything. Yeah, I loved, I loved um, John's... You know, and I did not articulate this at the time, I don't think, right. but, but that, you know, Dean Cundy's lighting and, and, mm -hmm. and, the, and that widescreen framing and the sense in Halloween of, you know, there's this impending doom. These characters are all kind of, you know, there's this evil in their midst and you have Donald Pleasance doing the kind of sort of Van Helsing sort of a character, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to tell the audience how, how evil and scary the bad guy is. But I, right. but, but there was something so real about that movie to me. There was something so um, authentic about those girls and that, the, you know, the, the Deborah Hill, the, the girl talk that she crafted and, you know, and Jamie Lee felt like this real girl and there was a vulnerability to her and she felt a little bit, you know, she reminded me of me a bit. And I don't know if that's kind of a queer sensibility there, but like mm -hmm. she was this quiet but well-liked girl. She was a bit different, but she wasn't like a nerd or a geek. She was, you know, and there was just something connective to me about her character and yeah, and and well, she was a real she was a real individual too. She fit in with everybody, and yet she didn't. Yeah, and she was at peace. She was at peace with that, with who she who she kind of was. That's is, right. right. Yeah, yeah, and, and, that's, I, and, and that's why she survived. I mean, really. I mean, and, and I always right? thought it was so strange when people would sort of get into this sort of thing of, of accusing that movie of having that moralistic thing of like, oh, the people have sex get murdered. And because to me, the first time I saw that movie and I would just, I don't know, 10 or 12 or something like that. Right. I, I, it was clear to me that that was not what John was, was doing. It was, it seemed obvious to me that that wasn't the point. The point was just that they were doing other things. They were distracted. It wasn't a moralistic statement. And, and the more, you know, about someone like John Carper, the more absurd, you know, that, that he would make that kind of movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, so, so I, so I, after that, I saw, you know, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, like those two movies I rent, I rented and watched at the same time on the same night. And I remember mm -hmm. like going to bed thinking it doesn't get any better than this. Like, you know, I, those, I mean, both of those movies are fucking brilliant. So, well, and, and especially Prince of Darkness. And I, as a kid, when I saw that film, I think a lot of it went over my head. I, right. I saw it when it came out. And I was, again, a little underwhelmed by Prince. I love the music. I always loved the, the, the world builder, the world that John and Dean and they all created sonically. And or, yeah. But I always felt a little bit, I didn't quite grasp it. And by the time the devil comes out, it doesn't come out. And I was like, oh, man. But I actually revisited it a couple times recently and realized what a s smart fucking movie yeah. that is. 
Yeah. What a what a work of like, and he signs it off as Quatermass, doesn't he? Does yeah. he have his pen name? Yeah. I mean, it feels like some weird Quatermass thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, I, I, uh, I, I'm with you. Like retroactively, I'm with you, but. It was, when and, I first saw it, it didn't hit me the, the same. Well, and it was funny because it was like a time to like that's such an exciting time in sort of a, a, a movie lover's life because you're you're experiencing all these movies for the first time. And I have such strong memories of them. Like I remember going to see um I, I, I basically used up the jumbo video horror selection at that point. Like I'd seen popcorn wow. and dead pit and you everything. even went like deep, deep down the well into all the down market shit and everything. Like, really? So much junk at that. Like, and I wow. loved Good most of it. Like, you know, most of it was, I remember seeing, um, like full moon movies. I would get my folks to drive me to faraway video stores to get ones I hadn't seen. Like doll man versus demonic toys was so hard as hell to find. And I found it in some <laughs> video store, like 40 minutes away from us. And I remember my dad wow. being pissed. Cause I was, I wouldn't shut up about going to this video store to rent it. So finally he took me. I thought it was a masterpiece. Not that it is, but I thought so at the time. Uh, yeah. And that was, you know, like it's funny when I watched it later. I was like, oh, it's 90% flashbacks to the original films. But anyway, I loved the idea, though, of, a, you know, people, there's those multiverse bullshit now. But like, again, Charlie was doing all that shit. He was doing it what, before anyone else. Yeah. Sure. There was this movie on the shelf that I was like, well, I guess I'll check this one out. It did. It, I didn't know what to make of it. It was like this, this, this sort of, you know, kind of zombie staging shot, and it was like the. So it was Dawn of the Dead. It was that old box art, you know, the one where. Th yeah, with the three Rogers coming yeah, up. Yeah, that's no, right. No. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, all right, I guess I'll I'll give this one a go. It doesn't really look like my thing, but I'll check it out. And I wasn't that. I don't think I'd seen Night at that point. I don't think I I I, I kind of knew who Romero was because I had bought Fangos, and I think mm -hmm. I'd seen Creep Show which I loved. Yeah. Um, so I, I had no expectation though. I hadn't heard of Dawn of the Dead. I didn't know anything about it. I, I kind of had a vague a notion of who Romero was and that fuck, like, you know, that was one of those things where you're watching a movie and you're just like, why didn't anybody tell me about this? Like, it just was, it was like a, a kick in the head. I was just like, wow, like, yes, yeah, this is what I want to do. Like this, that movie to me is like, I don't know. It's funny. Like people sort of describe, their own ideas of what sort of is the perfect movie and you know that's a weird dialogue to me because it's i think that's such a personal thing then the notion of a perfect film but, but for me dawn of the dead is a perfect film i'm with you too as you can see behind me here yeah. i mean dawn of the dead is is my favorite film of all time and so what's your favorite horror film of all time dawn of the dead what's your favorite action movie of all time dawn of the dead yeah, what's yeah. your favorite uh you know existential drama about the man's place in it dawn of the dead yeah what's your favorite you know because that's the beauty of yeah. dawn and as you age as a horror fan right i mean you start to watch all these great movies and you realize they're not just horror movies there's so much more a good movie's a good movie there's so That's much right. going on in the great horror movies than just trying to deliver cheap visceral thrill yeah that happened to me recently it's funny that you would say that i i watched um fright night the original fright night and, One of my things, yeah. and i had you know these memories of fright night as being a fun vampire romp which it is right. but then i watched again recently i was like oh wow there's so much more going on in that film than i had realized like there that movie has so much to say about sexuality and totally and and sort of the loneliness of being a weird kid and an identity and it, there's just it's that movie has a lot of layers and and you know as a young kid i just saw the fun vampire stuff and again i always liked the older character actor guy 
guys. So I loved McDowell in that movie. And that was why I was back and forth. I mean, he's so funny in that movie. And so just, and this is a perfect part for him. I can't imagine anyone else in that. Funny, but also because he's, it's as written, but also what he brings to it. Yeah. You know, in that one part where he picks up the prop and he looks at it kind of, wistfully and he says it's one of my favorite roles you know that yeah, one moment yeah. and it's just like such a throwaway line but it's he brings so much to that one fucking yeah. line you can see into his goddamn soul yeah i think he was they were trying to champion him if i'm not mistaken for oscar potential for that when when that movie came out it didn't really work out unfortunately but well I mean, it, to me that's that's an oscar level if there is such it, a thing that or if it matters it's oscar level you know and it's i'm you know i remember seeing the sort of the uh, the first time i saw that movie and the stuff with chris sarandon with his kind of male companion and you know yeah, really you know it's a fairly yeah. it's a fairly gay movie um sure uh and and you know roddy is definitely a, is almost even a bit there's a bit of queeniness in his role, even in that. Um, Absolutely. He's, he's, yeah. And I, I think it just, it was sort of the exact right movie for me at that, uh, you know, then and, and, and even more. So, and so it's like what you're talking about. There's these, these movies that stay with you and you revisit them every, however often. And there's just something different it has to offer you with where you're at at that point that makes it keep resonating for you and, and on, on different levels, you know, um, and Dawn of the Dead is one of those ones. And, you know, and, uh, another movie like that for me is, and it's funny because of how many times I've seen it, but um, the, the the first time I guess I saw Overnight was like, mm, that movie came out in what? 82. 82, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love Paul. Yeah, he, made, he made that, Toby Hooper made that literally right after, um, uh, I guess the Funhouse came first, and then he jumped oh, right from, from that. To, yeah, yeah. Poltergeist is a movie that's like comfort food to me. I'll go back to Poltergeist, yeah. but as I got older, I started to realize, wait a minute, there's more to that movie than than I thought. And uh, uh, you know, and then I would read these stories about you know all that bullshit about well Spielberg really directed it and all that kind of stuff. And um, you know, and I started to really because I got to know Toby in person and got to know him as, as a human being and. You know, that that was all very hurtful to him. And I thought, you know, that and that was the other part that that over time I started to understand was, you know, that, that behind all these great movies were these guys that, that, you know, worked their asses off and put their blood and sweat into these movies. Totally. And how many of them got burned? I mean, John, Toby, um, George, you know, terribly, terribly burned. Of course. Well, they got they got typecast in a genre that kept changing. And yeah. then suddenly they, they, the, the suits just thought these guys were passe because they'd been ripped off. But the Toby thing is, is tragic because, and you know, a casual glance will see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then jump to Poltergeist and go, well, he couldn't have made this. This can't be the same guy. But they're missing all the steps. You know, you can easily jump from Salem's Lot to Poltergeist. And then when you watch Life Force, you can see, okay, well, there's Poltergeist. I mean, it's clearly made by the yeah. same motherfucker you know yeah. what i mean yeah but at the casual glance it's the the mainstream and that's unfortunate when a lot of these guys have that i mean i guess that was toby's probably biggest you know jump into the mainstream a lot of these guys when they do end up kind of flirting with the mainstream it, it kind of bites them you know and then it's yeah. really hard for them to re to get the right the ship again george always had that part of him that you know i i 
I don't want to say he was resentful or something because it makes it sound like George was a, a grumpier dude than he was. But, yeah. but but George was, I think, I don't, I think George loved making movies, but I'm not sure how much George Romero loved the movie business. You know no, what I mean? You're right. You're right. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I'm 40 years old and I'm already there. Like, I don't love this business. I love making films, but I don't love. There's a lot of bullshit that that I just don't see as being important or necessary that comes with making films. And it's like a, a, an AD friend of mine um, said to me recently, said, you haven't made a movie now, Kevin, in like eight years. What are you waiting for? And I was like, um, money, financing, you know, the, for the things to line up. I've, you know, he was like, but you've had offers. I was like, yeah, to do like Hallmark movies and shit. I'm not doing it. Like, uh, I just, you know, and it, it's something I, I just can't. It's just as much work to make a fucking bad movie, right? As it is to make a good movie. So you have to try to make something that you think is going to be at least connective for you. So, you know, the idea of, to me of making some kind of, you know, Christmas love movie. And I'm not knocking guys I know who do this. It's fine. That for them, that's their choice. But for me, I'm like, I'd rather do other things than than make films like that. Well, uh, once and once the the trap is that once you get stuck making the Christmas love movies, it is a bastard to get the hell out of that ghetto. I mean, that's it. That's you right. think you can you can't rebound from like uh, you know, Christmas in Connecticut. And then suddenly make, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 5. I mean, it just it won't happen. Yeah. Like you, you'll never get yeah. back to that, that yeah. level. So Would it's you, a choice. That's right. But let me let me ask you because, okay, so you you know, you mentioned it's been eight years since you made a film and and this this hideous business, which is on well documented on many records of how <laughs> treacherous and horrible and parasitic this business is. But is this why this show exists? Is this kind of like where you said, all right, well, I... Not, while I wait for that to happen and come together the way I want it, I'm going to dovetail all my passions and my interests in this stuff to create yeah. something else. Is this yeah, kind of where that's a big part of it? I mean, it was it was also like, um, you know, there's that thing. I, I remember David Cronenberg talking about how when you're making a movie, um, you know, if you write some script and go to and, and and it's this super passion project and it's all about your own personal this and that and it's, you know, it's all just about kind of about you and what you think, you know, yes, you should totally write that movie and then like stick it under your bed because nobody else wants to see that movie. And, and, and that I always thought, you know, that that was a funny idea that like you cannot make a movie just for you. That's 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 very irresponsible and, and arrogant. And, you know, I want to do a, a show where I can talk to the kind of people I love to talk to about film, um, but not be so selfish with it that it's just for me. And, 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 and so that I can kind of. Um, and also have an excuse to, to ask people for their time, right? Like, you know, I knew I wanted, I love talking to filmmakers and I love talking to actors and, and not even just filmmakers, creative people who work in horror, you know, just whatever it is, comic book guys, everybody. I love talking to, to people, just chatting, you know, that, that sort of horror talk. And remember, this show started during the pandemic. So, you know, I was really missing the convention. I Like a lot of people rip on the whole convention world. I love little horror conventions. Not so much the big, huge stuff stuff uh like the big ones are a fucking i don't know those ones kind of make me crazy but but like little horror conventions where you see people you that you know and you you run into people that you see at all these things and you catch up and you yak about your favorite movies and your favorite merch and like i love that sense of community and that was gone for a while um so it seemed to me that if i could recreate that 
you know, as a podcast. And there were the, there was other kind of horror podcast talk shows like Mick mm-hmm. Harris has a great one. And, um, sure. you know, but but I didn't it, it wasn't I wasn't setting out to do a talk show, per se. It was more of a hangout kind of a thing. You know, I'm going to I'm going to bring on a guest or two or whatever the setup is. And we're just going to yak about, you know, uh, their career and their favorite horror movies and, and and just have it be something a little more like what it, what it was like the experience of when I would go to a horror con, you know, and see uh, like, you know, Tom Matthews, who's coming up at, at Horrorama. Mm-hmm. When he was on the show, like we just chatted, you know what I mean? It was like, and I was like, well, that's what we'll do when I see him at Horror Rom, and that's what I would do when I would see a lot of other guys at cons. When Jeff Combs was on, I've known Jeff for a long time, and we're friends, so it was just a chat. Like it was not this formal interview. And um, no, and you're, you know what? The last thing you want to do is ask the same damn questions these guys have been asked. The same. And that's hard, right? Money. It's hard. Like it's it's hard. It's hard. But if you have a genuine, like you do, interest in not just the work but also these guys as artists and human beings you can really uncover some rocks and get them talking and, and get it. them to reveal things that they might not normally reveal and that was it that was to me that you just nailed it i wanted to kind of talk to the person not not the guy that you get at a convention who's doing a q a you know you you know this better than anybody those a lot of those guys you know they're great and they're amazingly talented they're wonderful people but they go into a mode when they're at conventions. They they kind of yeah. turn on a thing. Like I was just at Fan Expo and Robert Ing was there. I love Robert Ing. Robert's a lovely guy, but he's in such a mode at those things. It's and it's it, he's it's a persona. It's a character. Like Freddy Krueger, he slips into this kind of mode and he's doing all the same bits and shticks and and and. George was like, no, I'm going to talk to people and I'm going to get into it with them. And he would really get into real conversation. There wasn't a George convention guy. No, it was just it was just George. And and he, what you saw at the shows with him, how genial he was and how kind and uh, that really was him in, in life. And I thought, well, if we could get people on the show, like when Jeffrey Combs was on, there yeah. was this we were talking about his Poe show and he's very passionate about that show. Sure. I mean, did yeah. you ever did you ever get to see it? I never, I never, never did uh, see it. It was at Fantasia, right? For yeah, he did it at Fantasia. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't didn't get a chance to see it. I I think I saw some documentation of it, but I never saw it in the flash. Unfortunately, well, it was it was really great. I remember I Stuart Gordon, who was a a good friend of mine. He, I was in L.A. and he said, "Oh, you want to come see my play?" And I said, "Oh, you're doing a play. What is what's the show?" And he said, "Was Jeff doing Poe? It's a one man show." And I was like, "Oh my god, yeah!" And so I. It was I took D Wallace and Richard Kelly, the director, uh, yeah. who's a friend of mine, and we went and saw the show. And Jeff was just breathtaking. He was so fucking good, Chris. Like it was such a great performance, and it was a side of him people had never seen. It was so far. Well, didn't, and didn't that all stem from the him, Stuart, the, the Masters of Horror episode that they did together? What didn't that kind of wasn't that sports? Yeah, I think that came first, and yeah. and Stuart thought there's more for us to kind of mine. Right, right, right. Jeff connected. I mean, Jeff is. It's funny. Jeff is one of those people where I think people see my conventions and they know the Star Trek characters and the Herbert West thing, and and that's so not Jeffrey Combs. Like Jeff is a very um, kind of serious actor in some ways, and I think sure. you know you, you see him play those these kind of characters, Milton Dammers and in, in the Frighteners, where he's so mm-hmm. wonderful and fun, but it's this huge character. When he did the Poe show, he got to really get deep, and and it's it's the play is really about the loss of love and tragedy, and it's very Shakespearean almost. And no one was giving Jeff the chance to do that in film. So well, you met you mentioned this. This goes back to unfortunately horror. You know, 
here's the here's the catch twenty two about this genre, and you'll back me up on this: is that an actor can be you know, like pick a John Carradine or someone who's done all this amazing stuff, and now you know walked with, but you're always going to remember him for the horror stuff, and that's going to be on his tombstone. Jeff Combs, wouldn't matter what he does here, there, and everywhere. Unfortunately, at the end of the day. Even Herbert more than Star Trek, he's going to be Herbert West, whether he likes it or not. So an actor has to either go with that or make peace with that, or they try to spend their life agonizing railing against it. Yeah. Uh, but you do get typecast in this genre. You do get yeah. stuck stuck in the rut. People see this and they don't want to see anything else. It's a real right. challenge for actors and creators. Yeah, and I think it's fine. I remember, you know, there's a Donald Pleasance quote where Donald Pleasance, who was a wonderful kind of workman-like actor, where uh, uh, he was asked about being typecast, and he said, I don't worry about being typecast. As long as I'm being typecast, it means I'm working. And I thought, right. well, that's a great mentality, but I can also understand the other side of that, where, you know, I know that, like, George, like, I think George would have loved if he had been given opportunities to make things that weren't about zombies. I think he would have relished. Yeah, and, and one of his best movies is Knight Riders, which is the, you know, anyone could have anyone could have answered Dawn of the Dead with Dawn of the Dead too, but he did Knight Riders, you know, which is one of his most personal, I think, you know. But 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 then guys like George and and, and John, they want to make westerns. They want to, but they can't. So what they do is they just say, okay. Give me the horror and I'll just shove all this shit in there and you're not even going to know. Yeah. That's that's what yeah. they got to do. But that makes their movies more interesting, right? George and I wrote a horror Western right, together. I that, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And and we were pitching it and, and uh, Adrian Barbeau got me on the phone with John and and, and because the, the movie was this love letter on my behalf to kind of uh, – it was sort of an amalgam of, of George and John's sensibilities in one mm-hmm. script. George – helped write it so of course his presence been it but but there was a very john carpenter howard hoxian mm-hmm. quality to it as well and so we sent it to john and john read it and he called me and and he said i really hope you get to make this he said you know they never let me do right. movies and i thought that was so in- and that's when i kind of thought we're probably fucked because you know if john can get something like this made you know i think the closest he got was probably vampires um yeah well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and then and George, his western, I guess, was his last film, right? But uh, which I, you know, everybody shit on it. I think no, is great. it's a beautiful uh, little uh, swan song. There's, you know, obviously problems with a lower budget, but um, you know, there's a lot going on in Survival of the Dead more than meets the eye. These were, but these were oh, the yeah. great filmmakers too. I mean, when they're gone, they're gone because they weren't watching. Although George, of course, loves loves you know horror films, Peeping Tom being one of his favorite films, and then John, yeah. same thing, grooving on Italian horror, which led you know. Yeah. But these guys loved all cinema, and so their influences yeah. are they're calling from such a rich well of of influences. Whereas a lot of today's right. filmmakers are looking only at other horror films, so they're 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 kind of nuts, you know. When George and I were writing this movie, it was called St. Jude. And when we were working on it, the movie that we referenced the most was called On the Beach. Yeah, of course. And it's not a horror well, film. Yeah, and but it's, it it's, got, it's dark. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. When George read the kind of treatment I had wrote, he said, have you ever seen On the Beach? I said, yeah, years ago. He said, that's what this made me think of. I was like, really? And he's like, watch it again. And so you'll see, you know, see what you think. And so I watched it again. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, there is this real On the Beach kind of vibe to to what I did Mm -hmm. here. And so we started to kind of just embrace that. And it was funny because most of our reference points when we worked on this movie together were in horror films. And I think George helped me to understand that you don't have to just kind of, you know, and I'm not saying this to criticize other filmmakers, but there's so many filmmakers 
characters now they're trying to kind of do their evil dead or their whatever and and that's perfectly valid and that's fine but but you don't have to do that you know and i and i think it's kind of you know like you're a big franco fan and you know and i've seen your films and like you know a lot of the sensibilities I've seen serve in your stuff isn't really even Franco's horror no, stuff. So it's, it's, it's like, just the moments of looking at, at boats in the harbor and stuff, you know? I mean, that's that's the stuff that Franco, not not close-ups of Lena Romay's vagina. I mean, I, I like that, but that's not what <laughs> that's not what I get out of those movies. I pick out, you know, when you're watching a film, your favorite films, we all it's so subjective as you mentioned. You're the, you're yeah. going in there and you're picking out these moments that are speaking to you. And when you leave with that, your memory of this movie is going to be different than my memory of this movie. That's the beauty of, of experiencing That's art it. communally is everyone's going to come out of it with a different experience, right? Yeah, like I loved that about like Puppet Master 3 is a movie I have such great love of yeah. and I've seen a thousand yeah. times. And, you know, it was this movie of marrying like a Puppet Master movie, Little Puppet, Charlie's Obsession with Little, you know, yeah. dolls and toys that kill people with a World War II movie like uh, Night, of the, Night of the Generals totally, or something totally. like that. And I was like, what a beautiful, I love those two genres. Yeah. So to me, it was like this, I, it's a movie I, we just, are, I have it, such it, affection. Appropriate of not, we can excise this because by the time you do anything with it, it's, it's invalid. But we're actually working on the 4K uh, Puppet Master 3 right now. We decided to just skip right to 3. That makes sense. It's 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 definitely the most. Well, it's also the, the prequel. Part. You know what I mean. So it's kind of like if you're going to go chronologically, it's kind of that's interesting. But it is the most. It's the fan favorite. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. I mean, I love two as well because it has this universal yeah, monster yeah, yeah. movie quality. Yeah. David Allen yeah. directed it, and I love yeah. him. But, but yeah, three is the one that you know. It's it's definitely the the, the granddaddy of the puppet master movies, and for good for reasons. Sure. I mean, David Allen's stop motion work in three is you know no, going to be better than that. It's a peak. What is your what is your thinking though on taking you know these older movies and some of these really low budget movies and 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 doing these four K masters? Like, it, do you it, have? It all you, depends. No, I don't it, listen. I don't. Um, we just did transfer. So something like that, I, I can see that because it's a, you know, retro future thing to make it look sharp. Great. You know, to, to get it, shine up, shine it up a little bit, shine up the, the silver and the polish. So it looks a little sleeker. That's okay. But some of the, you know, we mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It looks great, but I don't need to see that movie in 4k. I just, you know, watched Maniac recently and, and uh, you know, it didn't need to look that good. Maybe should it yeah. maybe actually yeah. look like someone scraped it off a the forty um, second Street pornhouse floor? You know that's that's that movie. It doesn't need to. The, the, it's like turning on the lights at a nightclub at the end and going, "Oh fuck!" Like you don't, you know. <laughs> this is where I just love it. I just, I just somebody in that corner. Ooh, but yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. this is like this is the thing. So I'm, I'm for it in the sense that. Yeah, it's great to see movies look as good as maybe they should have looked in there. And, but some of these movies didn't look that good in their first incarnation, and that's not why we fell in love with them. Well, it's weird, too, because some of them you watch now and, like, you know, you, when you pull all the grain and some of the murkiness out, you see some of the scenes that you maybe wouldn't want to see. No, you know what no. I mean? It's like uh, I was watching, uh, was it Tombs of the Blind Dead? Um, the You know, the beautiful yeah, I haven't seen the 4K. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I was like... It was my first time seeing it. I hadn't seen it before. And I was like, maybe this isn't the right way to see it. Because it's so cheap. The best way to see it is on the old Paragon VHS. It looks good. It's clear. Yeah. But it looks like it's been strained through hell itself. I mean, that's that you need that that otherworldliness, I think. Uh, it's, it's not a normal movie. You don't want it to look normal, you know? 
that line, I think I think Fulci's probably a lot of his work probably is in that. Yeah, ilk, so you Paul know, Nashy, all that stuff kind of has to have that alien yeah. feel. That's why we fell. That's why they became what they became. And, and that goes even. I, I collect. I collect film, and you know, you even watch sixteen mil, and and when you get light projecting through film, you're getting that authentic experience. And when digital comes along and yeah. the mop and cleans it all up, you're like, oh no, what have you done, you fucker? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm even that way a bit with Dawn. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the, the version of Dawn I saw was, you know, probably been watched a thousand times. It was a busted up old VHS yeah. tape, but there was something tactile. Well, about no, that, and then that they, I now they've and, color corrected all the blood. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, come on. No, I want the blood to look like melted yeah. crayons. Leave it alone. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're getting a little less of it now, thankfully, but like when Tarantino did Grindhouse and then everybody tried to make these oh fucking Grindhouse Oh my God, you can't self-consciously make that shit. It's accidental. No, it doesn't. It's it's like, you know, people who try to intentionally make good, no, bad movies. No, no, stop, just, stop. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's like it doesn't, you know, enough with the Sharknados and all this kind of shit. I'm like, it's not funny. It's if you shit. It's awful. It's terrible. Yeah. So yeah. when you close your eyes now that you've kind of assembled this, a pretty impressive cast of characters for the first rodeo. What are you? 45 interviews. How, sorry, how many? Yeah. Like 45. 45 in, and this is a single season or are you going to split this up? We're breaking it up into oh, a okay. few. Okay, so yeah. you have you can rest the you can rest a little bit. But how my question is, yeah, how does one rest? How does cuz for me, I know as a fan, I'm always like discovering something new or, or watching film. I want to talk to that guy or I want to meet this guy. And, and I can never stop. Thankfully, I have a little magazine. I can keep organ grindering, pumping this stuff out. Yeah. But yeah. How, how do you, how does one turn it off? And will you ever? I mean, when I started the show, my worry was I was like, you know, is there going to be some sort of perception or, or am I going to be do I have the perception that this is like, oh, you know, if you can't hack it as a filmmaker, then, you know, start a show where you talk to filmmakers. And then I was, and I had to kind of rewire that thinking because that's such a stupid way to think. That's so, you know, idiotic that, that I even went down in sort of that path at all because all that's happened is I talked to all these, these great filmmakers and artists and actors and whatever. And it just keeps me reignited, you know, keeps the fires well, glowing. And, and light, life is a classroom. So you've created your own classroom here and you're learning. too. There right? you go. Right. You know, some of the, the, the talks I get to have on this show with people, I think, you know, for people who listen to the show, there's going to be that sense of like, you know, that there's going to be new things here that, like you said, that, that they, they won't have got at conventions or in other places. And, and, and also the shows, you know, not even necessarily, you know, I, I don't know if I had a, a choice in this because it's just part of sort of who I am as a human being was an interest in like talking to people about, you know, that point in their life that where they pulled the trigger on, I'm going to, I want to pursue a life as a creative person, as a person who, you know, when you, you asked me earlier about, you know, what, that backup planner, almost everyone who's on this show either didn't give themselves a backup plan or jettisoned that backup plan pretty quickly and just said, I'm going to have to just go for this mm -hmm. thing. And, um, you know, I think that there's there's something to me that's brave and admirable about people who do that. And so on this show, I get to talk to people on a regular basis who are those kind of people who are ballsy people who went, fuck it, I'm going to really just go for it. And I know it's going to be hard and I might not succeed. And, it, you know, I don't even just aim for like, you know, to me, it's not just like I just have to get, you know, John Carpenter's and the, the, the masters of horror and the top of the like 
Of course, all those people are great, but I also want some of the guys, maybe people haven't heard of, and and, and to introduce audiences and, and listeners, maybe to some people they might not be familiar with who are doing great well, work. Well, and, and, and a good uh, interview. I mean, it's a good interview. So, I mean, you're, that's what you're looking for. That's yeah. it. You know what I mean? Like people probably ask you all the time. I mean, I guess like who some of your favorite interviews are. And if I were to wager a guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like I'm sure probably some of your interviews aren't necessarily predicated on who the most famous not, people. Not are. at all. I mean, then they're usually not even. You know, I wrote for the Toronto Star for years. Some of them weren't even involved in the genre at all. I mean, I mean, I mean, right. interviewing Rosamund Pike before she became did Gone Girl even, and it was just like. We spent hours. I mean, it was just an incredible conversation about everything else but cinema. It was just a remarkable chat. Uh, it's not sexy to say that necessarily because it's not one of the big dogs, but for for sure. I mean, you you, you yeah, it's unlike you're unlikely. Con- That's the joy of this too, is that you really don't know what you're gonna get. All right, by proxy, no, by proxy, and no. you know this too. Sometimes you do get those big dogs on, and it's like you know, kind of akin to interviewing a wall. I mean, you're not. Sometimes you don't get yep. anything out of them, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I won't, I won't name any names, but there's definitely, there's definitely like you have those people that come on, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to work harder here because they're they're in a mode. Yeah. They're they've are they're kind of telling the same stories they've told a thousand times, and they're. I try to make sure that when people agree to do the show, they understand it's not a PR style interview. Right. You know what I mean? We're not like if you're just coming on to plug your book or your new movie, or like it's pr- it's probably not going to be the best. Well, you experience just, all you have to it's... all you have to do is direct them to the title of your show and says this is, this is where yeah, we're going. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, we're we're gonna like and people do, for the most part though, it's funny, man. Like people are you know generally pretty willing to go there if they think. I think if they think that you that you respect that it matters and that it means something for them to go there, then they will. You and know if, what I mean? And if, if you you've done your homework with, as opposed to a cursory glance at their it. Wikipedia page, if they you can find things and observations about things that maybe they haven't even thought thought of in years or noticed, you're going to open them up, and they're going to know that you care about them enough to have done that, and so they're going to give you more. We I did an interview with Doug Jones not that long ago, who Such I adore, nice and he's yeah. you know this yeah. great. Yeah, he's lovely. And uh, and toward the end of it, he said, hey, I want to thank you for not, you know, he said, I've done a lot of podcasts. He said, and so many of them is like, you know, literally while I'm talking, the guy can hear him clicking oh. through IMDb and just going, and what was that like? Oh, and what was it like when you did this? And he's like, so I really want to thank you for like doing the work, like for, for coming prepared and ready to like really get into this with me. That's like, it's been really fun to actually get to talk to someone who who came ready to to get into it like and i thought about that i'm like yeah i guess you know you, you probably because because i think actors and whatever celebrity whatever that that whole concept you know is probably more accessible now than it ever was mm-hmm. before so a guy you know as talented and well known as doug jones has been on a podcast with some fucking clown who's just like done no homework who's literally like while he's talking to doug is going uh one sec well, what about this one? When what was that like? You know, I, like to me, I'm like the disrespect to ask someone for their time and do that. You know what I mean? I can't. I can't so, get my so head around the nature that. of of writing, broadcasting, creating. In that yeah. is that now everyone can do it, but not everyone should do it. You know, so <laughs> it's it. like yeah. okay, yeah. You got to really. It's like the Wild West. You got to really kind of like search through this jungle and find out the ones that are are doing it right on every yeah. on I've every ever, level. 
Jack Jack Ketchum saying to a guy who was talking about being a writer and he was kind of this obnoxious dude and he was being very preachy about, you know, a real writer does this and a real writer does that. And but this fucking guy had never published a thing or anything. And and uh and and Jack, who who, you know, a really nice guy, but this guy was pissing him off. Jack went, Well, you know, everybody's got a fucking pen and so ensconced in social media. I'm you know, where suddenly everybody (laughs) literally is a published writer. It's like, what the fuck? happened here how right. is some shit i blast I out on twitter how was that quoted in the new york times how did that happen yeah and that was part of you know what alienated me from doing something like this if i'm being honest was i was like fuck i'm gonna have to kind of get into all that you know this sort of self-promotion and the social media is like that i knew that all was going to be part of it if you want to show that actually you know it has the outreach that people know it exists because it's fine to make something like this and you know 20 people get to check it out and go it's great but you know you want people to be able to enjoy the thing that you're making um you know and, and i always like you'll be talking to some network or whatever and they're like you know that's really great product or really great content and i'm like oh for fuck's sakes like i don't think the thing i make is content or product it's it's you know it's it's not it's i can't think in those terms but you but you have to be able to kind of detach yourself enough to go what's it means to be able to keep doing it because you know if i'm gonna you know 45 interviews is a lot of work uh, especially with the amount of research that i put into each interview you know there's days and days of research that goes in every interview so uh, and and costs involved with that and you know it has to be sustainable mm-hmm. so you know as much as i'd love to do it um in a way where i, I wasn't beholden to any of that it's you know it's like f- films the same way it's just more expensive it's, it's you know it's, it, it all comes down to one thing the entertainment business it is you know you yeah. chose this path you got also have to eat so you have to find a compromise somehow somewhere (laughs) yeah and it's you know and i think that that compromise to me just boils down to like you know just making sure that you keep the thing that you're making you know and this world gets sort of vandalized a lot but sort of you know authentic i guess as much as you can you know yeah you know i try to and for me that part's easy because like when when people come on and i seem excited and enthusiastic talking that's me i am excited to talk Mm -hmm. to people like we have you know every time i have a guest on you know i've just watched a bunch of their movies or read their comics or whatever it is and i'm pumped to get into it with them i'm ready to be like how you know what what inspired this and how'd you get into that and you know i want to talk to them about sort of you know what 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 got those juice what was the alchemy that led to that it's it's like you know we're saying about watching a movie and being able to pull things out of it that are subjective and personal you know i i can watch almost any film or listen even a good song's a good song i listen to any song i can i can always find something in there that i can find interesting enough to speak to to me and to find some part of the person that created it in there so you can always pull something out of anything anywhere and throw it back to them and get something good get some good Good, yeah, I'll say it. The word you hate, content, out of it. But you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's contextual. One of the things you get asked a lot if you're, you know, a cinephile, is what your, you know, your favorite movie is, right? You were talking about that earlier, and like one of my favorite movies is Chinatown, and and I and I'll go on these long diatribes about why I think Chinatown's perfect and brilliant and a masterpiece, and and so often I get people be like, well, that's not even a horror film, and I'm like. <laughs> I never said I only like horror yeah. films. You know? Yeah, but like, then you can counter that with, hey, man, it was written by uh, Bob Town, who a couple of years earlier was hanging out with Roger Corman and wrote one of his best movies, Tomb of Ligia. So the DNA is flowing through these. And Polanski, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, 
it's it is it is you know sometimes you can find horror in films that are not been have not been marketed by the studios as such there my final question is and it's this um wide array of tastes and again finding things in other places that speak to you and fuel the horror but aren't necessarily horror i mean for me i've interviewed almost all my living heroes some of them i say that because some of them are no longer living but Thankfully, right. I managed to meet and talk to most of them sure. before they passed. Now, of course, there's a well of people throughout history that I would have loved to get in that time machine and go back and go, hey, man, hey, Orson Welles, let's go up for Demuzo and Franks, and sure. I want to ask you about the but, – but let's talk about the living heroes. For me, there's one – there's a handful of people that I would love to have the opportunity to chat with just to yeah. sit and pick their brains and riff on all their stuff because I've been thinking about their work for so long – but because I'm involved in this world, I don't really have access or any reason to connect with these people. Right. The, one of the top dogs for me is uh, David Gilmore from Pink Floyd, an yeah. artist who's, who's yeah. you know, casual bend of a string has spoke to me more than, you know, sometimes entire symphonies have and, and how much I'd love to speak to him about his solo work. And I'll probably never have that opportunity, but I would love it if I would. For you, who is your white whale? Doesn't have to be in the genre. Doesn't have to be even in cinema. Could be anywhere. Someone in the arts that you would give a part of your body to have the opportunity to actually sit with them and have a proper conversation. David Cronenberg. That's an attainable goal. But David yes, Cronenberg. okay, yeah, that's that's someone that you 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 could get. I mean, that's that's a reasonable. He's- yeah. He's a like he's he's someone who um who I've studied a lot whose work has always felt so vital to me uh whose whose identity as a Canadian filmmaker is imperative to me uh whose style as a human being uh, I, I and I know you're friends with 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 him mm-hmm. um so you so you you know him but but uh you know he's I met him very briefly once on the shooting of. I was working doing playback on Jason uh, Ghost, uh, Jason Next, the space one, and he had like a big cameo, in it, and I got yeah. to meet him really briefly. And he had just um, this aura about him that I was so. He just he's so fascinating to me, and such a such a true cinema kind of just it's it feels like he represents to me one of the great you know and you talk about you know some of them are gone now but i've met and and myself and worked with in some cases like a lot of my film heroes a major coup for me when we got charlie ban on here i told him once that i had seen him at an afm and he said why didn't you come up and talk to me and i said i was too nervous and he was like you were too nervous and i was like and it's weird i never get nervous when i meet you know i've you know i worked with sean connery and i wasn't nervous i never i don't usually get nervous and he was like why would you get nervous to me i'm i'm the most approachable person i'm right. da, da, da. And i was just like because of what he was to me growing up you know what i mean the video zone thing introducing he had this place in my mind that you know and cronenberg is like that because i remember watching a documentary i think it was on uh videodrome which is one of my favorite movies and and just david you know like you talked about people have this idea of him being like this guy from outer space or something you know lynch people think of a little like that too right same 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 kind of story like the nicest like most like uh chill guy but anyways yeah well, anyways, man, it's it's been a slice, and listen, I uh, I wish you luck. I don't, you don't need it. Thank you for the chat, man. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope like. It's- you have been listening to Kevin Lane spill your guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane spill your guts was created by Kevin Lane. 
and produced by Cindy McLean. Production editing and sound design provided by Blaine Swanson and One House Studio. Video production and editing generously created by Matt Handy. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. You're currently listening to supervising producer Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spill your guts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.